Occasionally we get into tactical, got a few kind of sort of tactical stuff, things going on today with some of the questions. Um, 
And we might minimize it a little bit because there's some people that get into the preparedness industry and they like freak out to the extreme on the tactical side. You guys are going to find everything you could possibly want at Sawtooth Tactical. But for the rest of us, there's a place for the tactical to go along with the practical, and you too will find what you're looking for at Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Really great stuff, high-quality stuff. SOE Tactical Gear, Magpul Magazines, the awesome, the cool, the great Titanium Spork. Check that out. Check them out today, sawtooth.com. Uh, I'm sorry, there's Sawtac, S-A-W-T-A-C, dot com. Again, another supporter of the Member Support Brigade. They give you a discount. Make sure you go to the benefits section of your Members Brigade site, if you're a member, uh, to get your discount. With that in mind, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get great discounts, uh, like you do with two of our sponsors. But it's not just our sponsors. There's tons of other companies that give discounts. I've got great deals in there for you. The membership pays for itself. 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode. You also get exclusive content. You get $150 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. Good deal all around, and you help support the work we're doing here. With that, I do have the housekeeping section um, kind of uh, wrapped up. And let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Richard calling from North Alabama. I just acquired four acres of gentle sloping pasture on a 10 acre woodland plot. I'm going to put in a couple of swales and contour, and my question is, is it worth to make hula culture beds out of the swell berms or just leave the berms as dirt? I have to haul the wood in over a couple of acres to make the beds. So I'm wondering if it's worth the extra effort. I'd like to grow food on the berms, and I'd like to get more water into a pond at the bottom of the slope. I uh, appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Well, the answer, like most things with permaculture, is, is it probably depends. Uh, if you have good rainfall in the area and you're planting appropriate plantings, it's probably not necessary, but it probably wouldn't hurt anything either. In fact, it would probably help vastly improve the quality of the soil. As I've said in episodes recently, I think that hugelkultur uh, is doing as much for irrigation as it is for soil structure and development of the fungal net within the soil and improving the overall interactions of, of what you're growing. That said, you didn't say what you intend to grow. You said you intend to grow food. Saying you intend to grow food is like saying you intend to buy beer. That doesn't mean anything to me because you could be buying Pabst Blue Ribbon or you could be buying you know, a really high-quality Belgian farm ale uh, or a Saison or something like that. Uh, I, I, I don't know what that means. What I want to be clear about, especially when we get into growing, to building swales on the scale you're talking about, multi-acre pastures, uh, we're growing large systems, we're back-feeding ponds and, and things like that, You're, you're looking at tree and shrub growing systems. It's, it's ideal for, for creating food forests and things like that. If you're planning on gardening with large scale swales, just, just stop and don't do it. Cause it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not a system. You're talking, you know, you're talking swales that are, you know, uh, two meters wide, a meter deep, large berms. These are, these are forest extension systems. And they'll hydrate the land downgrade. They'll definitely hold more water in the land, and that begins to rehydrate the shallow aquifers. That definitely helps you charge ponds up, hold more water in your ponds, etc. It does all of those things, but it's not for growing lettuce, peas, potatoes, and cucumbers. It just doesn't really fit that. There's better ways to do that. 
when we look at gardening and growing veg and stuff like that, we can definitely put in swale-like structures there, contour beds, contour paths in between them. That makes them more water-effective and water-wise, but this that's not a large-scale swale system. That's, they're just two different places. Um, a lot left out is where the hell are you at, so what's your rainfall like, and what do you want to grow even if you want to grow trees. Um, I probably would not do this. Um, where I would probably do swales, where I would hoogle swale, would be small-scale micro-swale systems where I'm growing smaller bushes and trees and shrubs with shallower root systems that need all the help they can get through establishment. Or if I'm going to be doing contour beds like I, decided, I, I just said earlier with gardening and things like that. And I'm probably going to use hugo culture in those very, very, very much so. And again, I'm thinking we should call these things more like woody beds or something here in the U.S. Because what we're doing is not the high beds that they do over in uh, Europe. And it's made, been made very popular by Subholzer. Um And I, I really think that we need to start, you know, when you, when you hear me talk about swales, understand that the scale of the system that we're talking about, it sounds like you're talking on that scale, but what you should be looking at is a multi-layer, seven-layer forest system built into those. And if you're doing that, you probably don't need the boost that comes from the wood core. And if the, the wood would be fresh-cut wood, it actually might slow down the establishment of the system and make it take longer. When we're putting in trees, right, we're talking about deep-rooted systems, and the swale itself is more than sufficient to provide the irrigation. So I'm leaning toward no. If you want to call this question in with some further follow-up for me, I'll be happy to revisit it. Uh, but remember that when we look at things in the permaculture world, whether it's hugo culture or swales or... Uh, any type of technique, combining them is great, but they don't always need to be combined. We need to look at these like multiple different tipped arrows in our quiver. And there's certain things we use a field point for. There's certain things we use a blunt tip for. There's certain things we use a broad t broadhead for. And the same thing as I did a show you know earlier this week on permaculture as a whole, we need to be choosing the right tool for the job. So in this case, I'm leaning towards no but there could be some factors that would change that for me. If you think there are, call it back in. And since this is a follow-up call, email me as soon as you do, sir, and let me know. I just called in with a follow-up on the Who Culture question and tell me what the, the, the caller ID should show me, and, and I'll try to do follow-up on a future show. But good question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, Matthew from Marana here, uh, the warrior hunter on the forums. Had a quick question for you on books. I wondered what your thoughts were on uh like e-versions of books like Kindles or Nooks versus having the actual paper book in your hand. Um, I'm starting to get into reading a lot more, especially American history and uh, my quest to become a better patriot. And I'm uh, ordering a more in paperback, um, but I see the, uh, the benefits of having them in an electronic form as I can uh, take a lot more books on a Kindle with me than I can uh, put books in a bag and, you know, with some... Uh, simple small solar stations you know we could uh charge the kindle if we needed to um so just wondered what your thoughts were on uh how to keep a library uh you know i'm sure it's each personal press preference but i uh, thought you might have some insights that i hadn't thought of thanks bye you know i think there really is a big 
uh, resistance to electronic books in the prepper community with the thought of, well, if technology fails, I won't be able to access my books. But as you just pointed out, a Kindle, a Nook, something like that, they have extremely low draw power requirements. And even something as simple as a little charging station built up with something like a 20-watt solar panel could provide you enough power to run one of those things for damn near the rest of your life. Um, yeah, you can't get more to it, but if you have a paper book, you can't. And from from a, a preparedness standpoint, the fact that you could bug out with you know five thousand books versus five books um, advantage electronics. And I think that this is a place where many preparedness folks, uh, many survivalists fall short by discounting anything that's technology based. When the entire advancement of society throughout history, going all the way back to the very first humans that figured out to pick up a stick and sharpen it on a rock, is based on technology, and technology's not going away. It may change, some of it may fail, but it's not going away, so we should not fear it. We should understand its limitations and have a redundancy plan. Now that said, a book that's more of a how-to book with diagrams or, let's say, a book on uh, harvesting wild edibles, I have been underwhelmed by everything ebook that's highly based on illustration or images. Um, as you move into tablets and things like that, they do get better, um, but to me, something like that works better as a, a book, something I can hold in my hand. I also look at, is the book going to be a really often referenced book, something you're going to go back to often? And to me, that right now, ebooks have a limitation that you know, kind of advantage hard copy. But most of us, we don't really read books over and over and over and constantly refer to them. We read a book, we take the information out of it, uh, a few years later, we may decide, ah, I, I really want to read that book again. Maybe I'll have a different perspective on it this time. Ebooks are fine for that. But if it's, if it's something that's going to be an often referred to reference, you know, a manual of sorts, uh, I've had much better results with being able to hold the book and page through it. So I would say in 90 to 95% of the time, uh, I'm going electronic format now. And I think as e-readers get better, that eventually we'll get to a point where as long as we know we're going to have some kind of power, resiliency, redundancy, that, that it's going to go to where printed books are on the way out as a mass market product. They, they really are. And I know there's a lot of people out there going, no, no. And they have a real hard time believing it. But it's, you know, people said the same thing about records, you know, when the, when the cassette tape came out. Oh, you know, it'll ne they're neat and all, but, you know, it's never the same as having little scratches and imperfections. And it's all, yeah, yeah, okay, and find a record store today. Find a cassette store today. Find a store that just sells DVDs and, or um, CDs today. I mean, the CD's on its way out. The CD is, is definitely on its way out. It's, it's a good way to have music in backup format, but why would you go buy a CD when you can get the digital version of the music? You know, it just, and you, well, you know, technology can fail. Yeah, well, all of those from records to eight tracks to cassettes to, they all require electricity and technology. So that, you know, it, we, we have to like kind of judge these things based on reality and not the next, you know, special that J.J. Abrams comes out with. 
On that note, for those of you watching Revolution, and I am, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm like, oh, God, at times. Like any show you're going to have, I think you're going to feel that way. Um, but did you notice that to make the whole plot line work, that they had to come up with something completely ridiculous? That, you know, doing an EMP or uh, CME, a coronal mass ejection, would have worked for the storyline? Because, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, people would have technology rebuilt to a large degree. Because all of these things just simply fry electronics and shut things down. They don't prevent you from building it back. They had to come up with something where you can't create new electronic technology. Something completely implausible as far as I'm concerned. And you know what? You want to see society break down. And one thing they got right, boy, if it happened that way, there is no way to create electronics ever again. Or at least until you find the pendants or whatever the hell the storyline is. That... That'd be interesting, but that's not what we're preparing for. We're preparing for things that actually have a high probability of occurring, and I think that ebooks do nothing to harm your preparedness. And in fact, I think again, they make you more prepared because rather than bugging, at, you know, take, if you have to, if you have to bug out, let's look at it that way. You have to bug out, um, and you want to take 50 books with you. How much food, fuel, and other supplies, medical supplies, etc., do you need to leave behind to take those 50 books? Where You know, in something the size of a tablet or an iPhone, I might have 500 books. So that's, to me, uh, adding a 20-watt solar charger system is pretty minor in comparison. Let's take a uh, another call. Yeah, William here in Amarillo. Okay. Since the Federal Reserve was chartered in 1913 for 100 years, doesn't that mean that their charter is coming up for renewal next year? Couldn't we just not recharter it or have our idiots up there in Congress uh, say no? Just a thought. What's your thought? Ah, the 100-year chartering of the Federal Reserve Bank that will expire in 2013, uh, except for one problem. It's uh, it, it's completely untrue. It, it just never happened that way. There was never a 100-year charter uh, of the Federal Reserve System or the Federal Reserve Banking System. In 1913... Uh, the Federal Reserve was chartered, and since it was a new thing, there was a time limit on the charter initially of, of 20 years. But that would have come up for renewal in 1933, which never happened because uh, on the 25th of February 1927, Congress made the charter perpetual, which means it, it renews every year automatically, like there's just no, it doesn't stop. It basically just self-renews over and over and over and over and over and over and over, over, over again. And so it's just a myth. It just never happened. And But I, I put it on the air because I think it's important that we understand how these myths of these things like this take hold. What happens is somebody says it, somebody gets... Usually it's not somebody who lies. Somebody gets a fact wrong and puts it out there and somebody repeats it and somebody repeats it. And if there's a propensity to want to believe it, then it becomes codified in, the, codified in the heart and mind of the person that heard it. And, you know, that's dangerous because it makes us look foolish. And from what I can tell, a huge source of this myth were a lot of the people in the Ron Paul crowd. 
Well, of course, they want this to be true, but you got to fact check stuff. And I had actually never heard of the myth of the 100-year Fed charter before. It took me about five minutes of Googling to find out that it was a myth and find out the facts behind uh, the curtain and to find a lot of people mocking Ron Paul supporters for it and calling them stupid and dumbass and other things like that, which is sad um, because it's just the fact that these people don't know and it's just being used as an excuse by those that don't like where these people are coming from, but it leaves you open when you start parroting crap without checking into it. And I get emails daily about Obama, about Romney, about different politicians, about all kinds of things that supposedly happened. War veterans that had this happen to them and that. They check out as true maybe one out of ten. Maybe one out of ten. And it makes me very skeptical of even the ones that sort of kind of check out because there's so much crap and misinformation out there. So one I'd like to call on everybody to, you know, let's start fact-checking some things, folks. Google's your friend. You know, it really is. Google is your friend, and it will help you find. And it doesn't mean everything you find is true, but if you find four or five or six different sources, you can start to cooperate and use logic to think through things. You can find official documents, official reports, multiple sources. Um, and if you find multiple sources that corroborate what you're looking at, but they're all cuts and pastes of each other, you really only have one source. See, and it's really important that, okay, if supposedly the Federal Reserve Bank was chartered for 100 years, then you should be able to go into a congressional record or the charter itself, read it and find that. But you can't because, again, it was chartered for 20 years and then made perpetual in 1927. So since that's the case, then you know that this 100 year Now, here's the bigger issue. It doesn't flip and matter. How did the Federal Reserve come into existence? The United States House and Senate passed the Federal Reserve Act, sent it on to the president, signed it into law. If they want to get rid of the Fed, they don't need to worry about when their charter disbands. The, the government can act to disband the Fed anytime they want to. Congress is given the power to coin money and set the weights and measures thereof in the Constitution of the United States of America. They took their authority and they granted it to the Federal Reserve, which sadly is completely constitutional. Congress, if, if you are given the authority to do something, you have the right then to delegate that authority. Because in effect, you're carrying out what you've been asked to do through a surrogate, which you at least claim to have oversight of. And the fact that you could disband the surrogate proves that you do. All right, So that's how it got. Now, you guys know I'm not a fan of the Fed, but that's the reality. The, the upshot, though, what would make this better if the charter myth wasn't a myth would be it would require Congress and the President to act yet again to keep the Fed in place. But let me tell you a little secret. It wouldn't even make the news. It wouldn't even make the mainstream news. If it was coming up, they would have done it 10 years ago, and nobody would, and when nobody looked at it, it would have already been done. It would have been under, under the radar and done. There ain't a person in government at the federal level that really is doing anything to rescind the power of the Federal Reserve and to put Congress back in control of the currency, which is what our Constitution says we're supposed to do. Now, I know there are those of you that disagree with whether or not that should happen. I don't care. 
And I'm not exactly in love with the idea myself, but here's my view. This is a constitutional republic. We should follow the Constitution. If we don't like something there, we should work to amend or change that Constitution so that it's more in line with what we do want. But as long as it says that, even if I disagree with it, it's what we should be doing. And if it doesn't say that they can do something, they shouldn't be doing it. So if you want the Federal Reserve to go away, then you're going to have to start stop voting for DNR now, aren't you? You're going to have to start firing people in the primaries and putting people into office that will do it. And I don't think the American people give a damn enough to do it right now. So that's where we're at. But, yeah, this is a myth. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Redfoot out in North Carolina calling. First of all, I just want to say I just went to my first Appleseed Project weekend, and it was amazing. I learned so much about shooting, and I just wanted to say thank you for letting me know about that. Also, I have a question for your expert panelist, Chef Keith. Keith Snow. Uh, I am going to start raising rabbits pretty soon, and my wife is getting a little worried about the fact that it's going to be our main food source, and she thinks it's going to get boring real quick. I was wondering if Chef Keith Snow could provide us with some nice, easy recipes that would make rabbit nice and different every night. All right. Thanks so much. Well, I'm glad to hear yet another member of the TSP audience has gone to an apple seat and learned about our history and learned more about becoming a rifleman and learned to shoot better. And started to build community by meeting other people doing the same thing. So that's awesome. On the rabbit question, I did ask Chef Keith to uh, give us an answer on that. He was good enough to do so. And I'm going to introduce him and have them do that right now. But I would like to point one additional thing out uh, in addition to what Keith's going to tell you, which is a great answer as always. You know, public service warning. You're about to get hungry um, when you listen to Chef Keith, as you always do. Um, but it's interesting to me that people worry about getting bored of eating something like rabbit when we don't really tend to get bored of eating something like beef. And just about anything you can do with beef or chicken or pork, we could do with rabbit with some caveats that Chef Keith will cover. But, um, you know, we can barbecue, we can smoke, we can braise, we can fry. I mean, you can, you're limited only by your creativity with any meat, uh, into what you season it and flavor with. And I don't think Chef Keith covers currying, but curried rabbit is freaking phenomenal. So I thought I'd add that in. And uh, now let's hear from the illustrious, the awesome, the badass Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Chef Keith Snow here. Wanted to answer the question that Redfoot over in North Carolina called in. Thanks, man, for calling in that question. Um, so your wife is petrified that you're going to be eating rabbit in your cereal. Now, that's uh, that's a new one. I've never heard uh, a guy tell me that his wife was worried about too much rabbit. But I've got to tell you, rabbit is awesome food. And um, once you let your wife listen to this answer, hopefully I'll have her convinced. But rabbit is terrific stuff. Um, a few bits of information about rabbit. Seeing that you're about to start raising it, you probably know, but for those that don't, uh, rabbit's an excellent meat. It happens to be, um, you know, really healthy. It's got less cholesterol than uh, most protein sources. It's usually lower in calories. It's got a ton of protein. Three ounces of rabbit, which is not a lot, has around 28 grams of protein. So uh, a food source when you know, stuff gets tough or times get tough or there's, you know, no food around, you're going to get tired eating grains all the time. So if you've got rabbits and you can sustain them, they're an excellent protein source. Um, another thing, you know, rabbit, you always hear, ah, it tastes like chicken. Uh, it might look a little like chicken. It's definitely got more color than uh, most of your chickens, but it definitely doesn't taste like chicken. Sometimes it behaves similarly when you cook it. Um, 
but I, I think it's a little more like veal, actually. Now, veal is uh, delicious stuff. I don't tend to uh, eat much veal um, just because I really think that um, it, it's, uh, I don't know, I just don't like the way they raise veal. But when I when I do have it, I really enjoy it. And rabbit is quite similar. Now, uh, some other facts about rabbits, you know, a normal, like, let's say a 10-pound doe, um, probably a pretty big doe can produce over 300 pounds of meat in a year. Now, if you were to calculate that, um, weight, weight to meat, you know, ratio there, I don't think many other animals are gonna, are gonna stack up. So, rabbits are excellent. Now, definitely don't fear that it's gonna taste like chicken. Um, because it's got, you know, it's, it's so, lean, you can dry it out really quick, similar to the way you can dry out a chicken breast. So you have to be careful. And rabbit tends to do well with um, uh, moist cooking like braises, stews, things like that. Uh, but you can cook it in other ways as well. So don't don't think it's only a stew item. But um, rabbit is excellent meat. I've spent a lot of time traveling throughout France. Uh, as we all know, the French are pretty sophisticated with their um, their, their culinary and when I'm there, there's a lot of rabbit on the menu, and they serve it a lot. They're probably one of the biggest consumers of rabbits. So as far as its culinary uses, the fact that the French use it a lot in a lot of different ways should tell your wife right there that it's um, pretty versatile. But I'll throw out just one sort of basic uh, way to cook it. Now, I could go on for hours about cooking rabbit, and it is very fun to cook with, I must say. But so when I cook, you know, I, I usually will go maybe uh, the root of an ethnicity or a season or a featured ingredient, what have you. But let's just say that we're in Italy here and, and we've got some beautiful rabbit. Maybe you've got, I don't know, two and a half pounds, three pounds of rabbit. What you want to do is take a stock pot or, you know, like a um, I use Staub. They're enameled cast iron pots like Le Creuset, one of those. Something that's got a tight fitting lid and it's got a heavy bottom. Usually it's going to be made out of cast iron and enamel. Very good things. Take some extra virgin olive oil, put it down in that pan, bring it up to temperature, medium high heat. And what you're going to do is take shallots, two shallots, mince them up really finely. Now you don't want big chunks of shallot, which is a member of the onion family. Um, so mince them up quite finely. Also take three large garlic cloves and do the same thing. Toss those down in that olive oil. Start to sweat them out. And that just simply means when you're sweating, you're not looking for any color. You don't want the flame so high that you throw them in there and they start to get brown. Because if you do that, you tend to have a completely different flavor profile. Um, so you're going to have it like medium, maybe medium high, but certainly not high. You've got olive oil in the pan. You throw down your shallots and garlic, and then you're going to have some minced fresh rosemary, maybe about a tablespoon. Now, that may sound like a lot, and it's going to be super fragrant and sticky and all the wonderful things that fresh rosemary is. But after this long cooking, it's going to mellow out nicely. So don't think that because it's strong... Um, that a tablespoon is too much. You want a full tablespoon minced up. Throw that into the oil with the shallots and garlic. You're just going to want that to get a little bit fragrant. And then you're going to take your rabbit meat. And um, you can have meat from all over the body. It doesn't have to be just the legs or what have you. So take it, cut it up into chunks. When I say chunks, I'm not talking about the size of grapes. I, want, I mean big chunks, like golf balls or small lemons. So you want some big chunks of meat because it's going to cook a long time. So take that um, rabbit meat. You're going to want to season it up with salt and pepper. 
and then throw it into that pan. And once you get it in there, spread it out and leave it in the bottom of the pan. You want it to start to brown a little bit and take use tongs. Take your tongs. When you start to see some browning, turn it over. And if you don't have any browning, leave leave the rest of the pieces alone. You want to develop a little caramelization on that rabbit meat. Once you see some of that, turn it over and then you're going to deglaze it. Now, what I would suggest is taking like maybe two cups of a red Zinfandel. And I'm not talking about that wussy, girly looking, you know, fruit punch Zinfandel. Buy a real Zinfandel. Look to spend between eight to 10 bucks on a bottle, something that you could actually drink. And with Thanksgiving coming, buy three bottles because it's very classic for um, Thanksgiving time. People drink a lot of Zinfandel. Um, but take some good red Zinfandel and it should have a pretty good color to it. And take two cups and throw it down in there and it's going to sizzle and sputter and all that and take your um your wooden spoon and start to scrape if anything happens to be stuck to the bottom that's a good thing so move it around with the uh with your wooden spoon and then let that zinfandel almost reduce out in other words if it's depending upon the size of your pot maybe you've got a quarter inch of zinfandel look for that pan to get almost dry not completely dry but almost then you're going to want to put in let's say three to four cups of rabbit stock. Now, if, you, if you're doing rabbits, you're going to have rabbit bones. You make a stock, simple. Throw them into a pot, put in a couple of carrots, a couple pieces of celery, um, take an onion, cut it in half, throw the whole darn thing in there with the skins and everything, garlic clove, a few peppercorns, bay leaf, and then fill it up with cold water, not hot water by any means, cold water. And when you're doing the... Um, what do you call it? I'm losing my train of thought. The celery. Don't worry about the celery, you know, the, the frizzy part of the celery, the leaves. Throw that in there, too. That makes really good stock. So bring that up to a very slow boil. As soon as you start to see it boil, turn it down and uncovered now. Let that cook for at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Strain the whole thing out. Now you've got a rabbit stock. So you're going to use that rabbit stock, and you can freeze this, by the way. You can put it in ice cube trays or in plastic bags. It'll freeze and keep for a long time. So you throw in your um, rabbit stock, and then what you're going to do is make sure you season the entire um, pot of food with salt and pepper, put a lid on it, and cook it in the oven. Um, turn your oven on, preheat it to 350, so it goes from the stovetop into the oven, but you have to make sure that your um, stock pot has got an oven-proof um handle and most of them do but make sure that you've got an oven proof handle you know it lifts the cover off so you throw it in there you cook it about one hour at 350 and then when you open it up you've got a um probably going to be thickening it a bit and what you can use is a cornstarch slurry and that's simply equal parts cornstarch and ice cold water you mix that up and, um, you know, let's say you start with three tablespoons of cornstarch, three tablespoons of cold water, mix it up. And then once you remove your rabbit stew from the oven, just drizzle some of that in there and um, stir it together. It's nice and hot. It should tighten it up or thicken it up. Um, but it might be thick. You know, maybe you had a lot of evaporation. I'm not sure what type of a pot you're using. But you should have some liquid in there. You're going to want to thicken it up a bit. Once you do that, now you've got an incredible... Um, rabbit and zinfandel type stew with that flavor of rosemary a good thing to serve that over would be uh, polenta and for those of you that don't know polenta is basically grits but it's just yellow cornmeal instead of white there must be italian rednecks too i mean for them to be eating grits like that and of course i'm only kidding folks because i live among all the rednecks here in north carolina just like uh, our buddy who called in this question 
So I'm just kidding. But um, polenta is good stuff. It's basically, you know, it's yellow grits. They tend to fancy it up a little bit. Cook it with water until it thickens up. Make sure you season it well. And this is the problem with grits is it tastes like garbage because they don't usually season it enough. Um, but polenta, you want it seasoned. You definitely want to put a little butter in it. And then what I would do is take about a cup of mascarpone cheese. And this is the stuff that makes tiramisu taste so wonderful. But you can take that mascarpone cheese and um, maybe a cup and maybe you've got about five or six cups of um, finished polenta. And then you know, turn that in there. You can, you can add more fresh herbs if you want. Maybe some fresh, a bunch of fresh chives. Uh, but mix that stuff in there. That's going to make it nice and rich and delicious. You scoop some of that out onto a bowl and then some of your rabbit with that wonderful rich gravy and you have a terrific meal. Now, the same type of system there, that wet, you know, braise, you've got aromatics, you've got stock, you can add all types of vegetables to this. So I just gave you one that's very simple, but you can put things like turnips in there, carrots, potatoes. There are lots of vegetables that you can toss in with rabbit and make a stew. Now, once you've got that technique down, you can do 20 different ethnicities. You can make a wonderful recipe with rabbit just doing Indian flavors, curry, cardamom, things like that, coconut milk. You could do Mexican with, uh, you can make a roasted enchilada sort of uh, cream sauce, like take, um, let's say, I don't know, 15 um, tomatillos. And um, what you want to do is boil those for a little bit. And once they're soft, you can add in some roasted onion and garlic, some cream, a little bit of stock, blend the whole thing up, and you've got kind of like a, a green sauce, add cilantro, rabbit. You can make enchiladas like that. There are lots of different ethnicities and ways to cook with rabbit, but it definitely excels you know, with braising, pan roasting and pan sauces, stuff like that. Another really great way, and if you've got a lot of rabbit, you have got to learn how to make terrines. And a terrine will make uh, like a pate. So pate, terrine, all of this stuff is is uh, force meat. You know, it's a form of charcuterie. And when you go to France, you'll see lots and lots of terrines made with rabbit. And you would have you know, let's two or three rabbits, the entire rabbit, the meat would be ground up really fine. You would be adding things like fat back, um, herbs, wine, and then um, you take the entire mixture and you put it into a terrine. A terrine is the shape of, of the um, pot, and those are usually enameled cast iron as well, but heck, you could use a loaf pan. You line it with plastic wrap, your meat, and all this can be done inside of a food processor. Your ground up meat, your fat, your spices, your herbs, your wine, everything goes into the food processor. And then you take it, you just got to have salt, remember, and you take it and you, you put it inside of your, um, your loaf pan that's uh, layered down in there with plastic wrap. You put the plastic wrap on top. Then you would cook this in what's called a bain-marie, like a water bath in the oven. Uh, until it's done, but you can, uh, if you want to email me, I've got a great rabbit terrine recipe, and that goes for anybody out there, uh, but it's terrific. Rabbit is just fabulous inside of a terrine. Um, so there's a couple of ideas, but definitely don't be afraid that uh, rabbit is like, you know, eating a grilled chicken breast every night, because there are lots of things that you can do with rabbit. Excellent meat to have on hand. I would take rabbit, home-raised rabbit, over store-bought chicken any day of the week, any day of the week, because that 
chicken anymore, this stuff is useless. Let's let's be honest. This store bought chickens, pfft, no flavor. They're fed lousy food. They're horrible. And the other thing about rabbits is they generally are raised up off the ground. Tends to be um, really clean, which is a good thing because you don't want to be messing with those evil diseases like E. coli. So rabbit, a good thing. Now uh, I wanted to also do a little plug for myself while I've got your attention. Um, those of you that listen to this podcast, you obviously know how to listen to podcasts. I also do one. And uh, I don't have uh, quite the number of episodes our maestro Jack has, but we just crossed a 100-episode mark. And on the Harvest Eating Podcast, we took, talk about all kinds of stuff, cooking, harvesting, local food, raw milk, you name it. So I'd love to uh, have you guys uh, tune into the Harvest Eating Podcast. It's in iTunes. You can pick it up off my website as well. And then lastly, you Roku owners out there, if you don't know what Roku is, R-O-K-U. Roku is an awesome little device. It's about the size of a hockey puck. You plug it into the uh, your TV with an HDMI cord. <clears throat> it gets powered by the wall, and then it, it will uh, suck up your wireless Internet access, and you have just a host of programming to check out. Um, once you buy the Roku, there's no programming fees. There's lots and lots of stuff on there for free. But then if you want extra services, I think it's $7.99 or 8 bucks a month, you can get Netflix. And that's what we do. And uh, there's tons of programming on Roku, including the Harvest Eating channel. And that can be added for free. And we are in the process, uh, just as fast as humanly possible, adding more and more of our content. We actually just uploaded I think 28 new videos that I need to get in there and tag. But uh, Roku is a good thing. You can check out Harvest Eating. And uh, my buddy over there in North Carolina, uh, I salute you, man. Eat some rabbit. Okay, well, I'm hungry and uh, really excited to one day actually have my own rabbit tree so I can do stuff like that. And uh, I did warn you. Uh, before the call that that was going to happen. So uh, now that we've uh, we've got that one knocked out and everybody's hungry, let's take another call and see if we can get our minds back on whatever we're doing until it's uh, lunch or dinner time. Hi, Jack. Dave in Tennessee, uh, two core eight B eleven on the forum. I had a question about gasoline. I've got uh, about uh, half or three quarters of a gallon of gasoline that was mixed at forty to one to run a uh, gas powered trimmer season's over and not using the trimmer, I was wondering if it would hurt anything if I poured that just into my gas tank, because I hate to waste any, it's so expensive, uh, if that clog up the injectors or something. Or another option I have is I have a little gas-powered four-cycle uh, Chinese scooter, which has a normal carburetor on it, and I was thinking, well, maybe I could just sort of pour it in there a little bit at a time. That, that one only has a gallon gas tank, so you know, if I poured in a quarter, I could taken uh, dilute it down even further uh thanks for all you do and hope to hear from you thanks Bye. well the answer is a small amount of two cycle oil mixed into a a full tank of uh gas for a normal uh everyday uh, you know middle of the road vehicle will do absolutely no harm whatsoever um, there's actually additives that are effectively a little bit of oil. Uh, Marvel Mystery Lube is, uh, is one of those. Uh, so it wouldn't do any harm, especially three quarters of a gallon with a 40 to 1 mix then dumped into a, you know, a tank of fuel that's holding, you know, from a small passenger car 13 gallons up to maybe 30 gallons in a large truck. It, it would be completely and totally insignificant. Um, 
if it's going to cause a problem in large concentrations, it would be far more likely to do so in a fuel-injected vehicle versus something that's, that's normally carbureted. Um, I always thought this would be a problem, and then one day I had this uh, weed eater that was a four-cycle motor weed eater, so you didn't have to mix gas in it. And uh, it had some problems that I could not, I just could not get it to work right. So I took it to a small engine repair house, and the guy got it running for me, and I went to pick it up, and I noticed just based on the color that was in the, the, the fuel tank that it had two-cycle lube in it. And I said, dude, this is a four-cycle motor. And he said, yeah, we just, you know, for all of these motors, we just keep all our gas mixed with two-cycle lube because uh, it won't do them any harm. But if we forget to put it into gas that's going into a two-cycle motor, it will. And sure enough, the weed eater has run fine and never had a problem, so I would not worry about it. I certainly would not go dumping, you know, a couple quarts of it into your, you know, fuel-injected car, though I, I'm not sure it really would do very much, even at that concentration. But a little bit of leftover that you don't want to hold through the winter, dump it in your tank, rock on, and, and don't worry about it. And to all the people that are going to tell me that I'm wrong, uh, I've done it. Nothing happens. You can try it, too, for yourself if you want to. And uh, let's take another question. Hello, Jack. Ty here in Austin. The boiled-down version of my dual question is what scope to buy and should it go on the rifle I currently own, which is a refurbished Remington model 03A3 30-06. I simply refer to it affectionately as the 1903. It was given to me 20-plus years ago by my father, who's no longer with us. Obviously, it therefore holds some emotional value and perhaps some collector value. I have considered paying someone to build me a sporterized rifle based off a of Mauser action, but the cost is prohibitive, especially when you add in the cost of a quality scope. My 1903 is solid as hell, albeit heavy compared to a custom gun with a modern synthetic stock. But since I already own the 1903, I am much more likely to invest properly in a good scope. If cost were not an issue, I would buy a new rifle and let the 1903 hang out as a collector item. But as things stand right now, I might never get around to it, so I'm thinking that going ahead and scoping the 1903 until I have the cash for a new rifle is the quickest solution. More expensive is not always better when making purchases, but my research thus far has me thinking that in the case of a rifle scope, you do in fact get what you pay for. My goal with searching for a scope is to round out my collection with a scope long gun that allows me the ability to practice and become proficient at long-range shots. I have a pretty fair bit of experience with shotguns, assault rifles, and sidearms, but my skill with long-range shooting is in dire need of help. So hopefully you have some advice that will help me avoid overspending and or buying a scope that will not hold up well in the field or need constant attention to keep it sighted in. Before I sign off, I wanted to quickly recommend a fantastic book that just came out called A Field by Jesse Griffiths. It's a recipe book for hunters and fishermen that is chock full of color photos and instructions on how to break down everything from deer and fowl to crab and fish. It's available for around 20 bucks and probably one of the most valuable books I now own, and I own a bunch of them. Thanks for the great show, Jack. Cheers and God bless. This is one of those places where the tremendous, when you start getting into which scope, tremendous numbers of pluses and minuses. Let me start out with whether or not you should scope this rifle. It sounds like this thing's already been converted, and scoping it means um, buying a set of rings and a scope and mounting it on the rifle. If that's the case, there is no reason not to do it. If to do this, you're going to have to go and have someone drill and tap this rifle 
that is a piece of history and it has not yet been drill and tapped. If, 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 um, if sporterized or converted or whatever means that has a different stock on it, but the metal of the, of the, of the gun is unaltered, I would think twice before I would do it. If the metal's been drilled already, there's no reason not to. I have a very similar rifle that you're talking about. I have a 3006 in a 1917 Enfield, which most people think of Enfield as being the 303 British, but Enfields were manufactured for the United States during World War One, as well as the Springfields. In fact, more Enfields went to the field than Springfields, and the only reason the Springfield became the standard after World War One until things like the M1 were introduced is because the uh, Springfield cocks on open, Uh, and the Enfield being more of a true uh, old Mauser action cocks on close. So when you open the Springfield, it cocks, and when you open the Enfield, it does not. You pull it back, and as you push the bolt forward, it cocks on opening. And Congress, most of whom had probably never fired a weapon in their lives, decided that it was more likely to have a point of failure, even though there was no information given to support that. It's a little uh, arms history on World War II arms there. Um, so that's where you're at with it. And mine has a beat up old cheap three by nine Tasco scope on it. And the reason that scope is on there is because when the original person did the sporterization to this weapon, which is yes, a disfiguration of a historical implement, but it's done now, right? It's done. It's over with. I'm, I can't put it back. So I've used this rifle hunting a great deal. And as you mentioned, they are heavy, but boy, that, When you, when you, if you can get a rest, talk about rock solid with that heavy rifle with a good rest and, and the accuracy you get out of it. Um, when they did the drill and tap, it was an amateur job. It was not something done by a professional gunsmith. And the rings are so far apart, very few scopes that have a small enough objective lens, which is the, you know, the lens out in, in, in the front, to actually fit into the rings and not have the bell touch the barrel. So this is a kind of small form factor, three by nine, but are also long enough in the tube to fit between the rings. So this was done poorly, and to put a better quality scope on it, what I actually would have to do is pull the mounts off, clean it up, have the, the, the existing drill and tap job welded up shut, and have it redone. And it just doesn't seem to be worth doing that. And this old scope that's probably been on this rifle for more than 50 years is damn accurate, damn clear, and still works, and it's a cheap Tasco. The reason I tell you that is because you can get inexpensive scopes that will work very well. They're never quite as crystal clear, never quite as crisp, but they work well and do a good job. And kind of the, the, the lower-cost scopes that I would put into the range of being pretty damn good scopes are Bushnell, uh, Redfield, uh, some of the more economically priced Weavers, uh, Burris. Uh, these are all really decent quality scopes. I like Redfield scopes. I think that they're way underrated. Uh, a lot of people say that they're not good scopes, but I, you know, I've had quite a few different ones. Uh, Simmons as well. Uh, those are two pretty dadgone good middle priced options for what you're doing. If you want the best scope you can put on there, you're probably looking at Leupold, Sawarski, Zeus. Uh, those are your kind of your top end, but you can end up spending 
500 $800 or more for a scope for a rifle. The caveat there, if you ever do build your custom Mauser or whatever, or have a custom mountain rifle made, or just get a really good off-the-shelf modern rifle, that scope can go on that gun. So unlike the gun itself, which kind of is what it is and done, the scope can adapt to other platforms. For getting out at longer shots without getting ridiculous and big optics and everything, I'd look primarily at 3x9s. It's the most popular that you're going to find for that type of application, and therefore the most widely made, and therefore has a lot of economic uh, places that you, uh, or a lot of good economical options. Another thing to look at, though, is if you go out and buy yourself a $100 or $90 Simmons 3x9 and take it out and shoot it, and it shoots well and it holds zero for you, you're fine. You can always buy a more expensive scope down the road when maybe you have a little bit more funding. If you get one out of the box that's wonky on you and it doesn't hold zero, you can return it and get your money back, exchange it for another one. When you're, the, the other comment, though, is I want a scope that I don't have to constantly fiddle with to keep zeroed. If you have a scope that you have to do that with to keep zeroed, there are only two things that can be true about your rifle, your platform, your scope. One, it's mounted incorrectly and either the rings are not tightened down right or the bases are not tightened down right, and the scope is moving in the mount. And if that happens, it will not hold zero. You'll fool with it, you'll put it back, but it won't hold. And it's, it's, it's useless that way, because you never know which shot, with, and with a heavier recoiling center for like a 3006, it's going to move a lot. And with a heavy rifle that only moves so much, the energy is going to transfer to the scope more efficiently, and you're going to get more movement if you have a poor mounting job. The good news, if you have a poor mounting job, you take everything off, you clean it up, you put some removable Loctite on it, you do a better job, you go back out and shoot it again, and it works. And you don't have a problem, and it's operator error, which we can correct. The only other option is the scope itself has movement in the reticle. And it's not, the scope literally is not holding zero. A scope that does that is junk. It cannot be fixed. So it's important when you get a new scope and put it on your rifle to get out there and shoot it and to make sure you're doing things like don't get your barrel screaming hot. This is part, I see guys at rifle ranges, not so much anymore because I don't have to go to a range to shoot anymore, but when I used to go to the range all the time, I would see guys all the time. They would shoot and they're, they're, they would get a good group, get a good group, and then they would start to walk a little bit on them. And, and you know, they just start, they get angry and they start turning the scope. And now the barrel's cooled, so now they've adjusted it back the other way. And you, they get a barrel to where you literally will burn your hand on it. And it's going to have a slightly different impact because the way that barrel is going to oscillate, which is when you fire it, that barrel actually twists and moves. Uh, with high, the steel at higher temperature is going to oscillate slightly differently than a cold barrel shot. And we want our rifles zeroed to be accurate with a cold barrel shot. And a good quality rifle is going to hold zero very well for a lot of shots. But if you're out there at the range and you're really pounding rounds through it, especially some hot loads, you can change things. And if you start chasing it, right? So the right procedure here is to fire a three to five shot group, wait for a little bit, let the barrel cool for five minutes, fire another one, do it again. Give it some time. And this is a great thing to do. Take another weapon with you. So you can switch between them. That'll make you patient. 
Measure your shots. Take them slowly. The other concern I have, because this happens all the time too, you see a guy out there, this scope is junk, you know? And I've seen people angry and just, and I, hey, could, what, you or me, could I shoot your rifle a couple times? And you let it cool down? And then, boom. 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 And you look at the target, and you've got an inch group at 100 yards. There's nothing wrong with the scope. Scope will not compensate for the shooter. Since you're saying your long-range shooting needs work, make sure that you don't end up blaming the scope for how you shoot. And the best way you can do this is if you know a truly competent marksman, have him zero your rifle for you and check your scope. That's probably the best thing to do, if, especially if you're new to shooting center fire rifles with a scope, and then start your shooting at like 25 or 50 yards. Develop control, learn not to pull, learn not to flinch. You should be able to, with that rifle, at like 50 yards, 25 yards, I'm talking quarter-sized groups. Those are damn good rifles. Try a couple different brands of ammo if you're not real happy with the groups you're getting out of it. But, man, the Springfields and the Enfields are both incredibly accurate when you think about the fact that these things were made 100 years ago. They're unbelievable. And, and if that gun's already set up to scope and to hunt with, take it out and hunt with it. Take that piece of history with you. Um, I have a lot of guns. And if you just want a low-cost, easy-to-use, accurate Bolt action center fire rifle with a scope. You can go get a, a decent 3x9 Simmons and a Savage, a used Savage 110 and 308 or 3006, and you can be out less than one good scope and you can do it. But it will not be a piece of American history. It, maybe one day it will, but it won't be right now. And it won't have ever potentially served in the trenches uh, in World War I. And there won't have been some GI somewhere along the way that lovingly cared for it because he knew it was part of his, you know, keeping him alive. And even if it was never deployed, it was used in training or something like that. And some former soldier cared for that weapon. And boy, if you've ever been in the military, you know what I mean by that. And it means something. And then it was handed down from your family. So don't hesitate to take that out and turn it into something that you'll hand to your child and maybe added to the memories that it came from your dad and before that it came from the World War One era, maybe dad shot a few deer with it. That's a pretty special thing to hand down. And the good thing about handing down a Springfield is when your great, great, great grandchildren are still around, as long as no one's ever taken guns away with a seizure, and as long as that weapon's been reasonably cared for, it'll still be doing the job. And that's something special. Let's take another call. Actually, we're not going to take another call right now. Um, I've got a lot of emails recently since we did all the generator shows uh, from people looking at solar generators, as they're called. I've spoke out about why I don't like a lot of them before. Uh, a particular model keeps getting sent to me. Uh, Ready Store sells it. A few other places sell it. Um, I kicked this one to Stephen Harris, so there's no you, there's no call here, but there is a Stephen Harris answer on this generator, and I'll link to the specific generator uh, for you so you can take a look at and understand everything Steve's talking about. But uh, I asked him, I said, hey, man, I, I slice and dice this thing. Explain to people why this is not a good way to invest your money. So, hey, Steve, take it away.
Hello, guys. This is Steve Harris of the Expert Panel coming to you with an extra Expert Panel answer. I'm getting questions about these solar generators all the time now. Most people are thinking that they're a lightsaber of infinite power just because they're rated at 1500 or 2000 watt. What most people do not realize is that the battery in these solar generators will only last for about 10 minutes at that power level. Yeah, 10 minutes. Does not sound like much of a generator now, does it? And they're charging between $1,500 and $2,000 for this thing? I don't think so. Plus, there is usually only 100 watts or so of panels that come with it. And that 100 watts in full sunshine, and that's watts per hour, guys. Uh, and this is with you moving it, pointing at the sun. And even if you had 10 full hours of sunshine, and you're not going to because it moves across the sky and it's less sunshine when it's lower on both ends of the sky. Between battery inefficiencies, the panel not putting out all of its energy into the battery, which you'd be surprised how often that happens. Inverter inefficiencies and such, you might get 400, 400 usable watts of power from one 100 watt solar panel in a full day. That's 400 watts of power for one hour in your battery from a day of sunshine from a 100 watt panel. That does not sound like a generator to me. Does it sound like a generator to you? Now look, why does Stephen Harris love solar power yet hate solar power? Because you you heard me say both things. I want you to use what you got, what works, what will work now. And that's your car in your driveway with an inverter. I have a whole TSP show just on that subject. I'll give you the link at the end of this little speech. Your car or a generator works now, when you need it. When you are ankle deep in water in your basement and the sump pump needs power and you're in the darkness with a flashlight between your teeth and it's 3 a.m. in the morning and your wife is looking down the stairs saying, Honey, are you all right? Is there water down there? You need something that will work right now at 3 a.m. in the morning. I have two entire shows I did with Jack on how to select and hook up a generator to your house. Yeah, I'll give you the link at the end of this. I have already had several people email me from their iPhones from Sandy saying, Thank God, Steve, that 800-watt inverter you told us about powers my sump pump. They had no end of joy at that ability. That's a $60 800-watt inverter that just saved the rear ends from lugging buckets of water from the basement upstairs to be thrown outside every day, every evening, every night, every morning for an entire week during these sandy power failures. We have the entire show on how to power your house from your car. And Again, the link's at the end of the show. Do you want to spend $1,500 for what you can do right now for between $20 and $200? That depends what size inverter you get with your car in your driveway that you have right now. Okay, $1,500 versus $50, guys. And the car will work even better than the solar generator. Now, here is one of two Perfect examples why I really dislike these solar generators and their sales job that are being sold for between $1,500 and $2,000. Hurricane Sandy was a 1,000-mile-wide, slow-moving storm. It's November 1st right now when I'm recording this. It's three days plus since Sandy hit, almost four days. 
It's still cloudy and raining in Pittsburgh right now. Okay? Three days, four days later, and it's still cloudy and raining. But get this. It was raining for two days before Sandy even got ashore because it's so big. It's been raining for three days after Sandy, Sandy and it has been cloudy for five to six days total. 100% cloud cover for five to six days because of Sandy. Despite what these con artists selling you these solar generators will tell you, solar panels do not work on cloudy days. A 100 watt solar panel that outputs 100 watts in full sunshine in the summer will output 10, 5, more like 2 watts in cloud cover. I'm not joking guys, okay? It's directly proportional to the amount of light and it can be a hundred times brighter in the sunshine than it is with clouds no kidding a hundred times brighter look guys you know this as much as i do when the crap hits the fan it is going to do it with a bang and you're going to find yourself stuck in a situation that you have to fix right now you have to do that with what you have right now and what works right now. And that's your inverter in your car. And here is the other reason not to buy these solar generators. I am going to tell you how to build one step by step. There is only a few hundred dollars in material in these things, and they're selling them for a few thousand. I'm going to tell you how to make a home battery bank and how to make a mobile battery bank for your car. And yes, I am going to tell you how to hook up solar power to it. But first, I'm going to tell you how to recharge your battery bank from your car. I'm going to tell you how to recharge your battery bank from your generator. And then finally, as a last resort, if you have sunshine, how to recharge your battery bank with a solar panel. Yes, I'm going to tell you how to hook up and use solar panels on batteries that are big and batteries that are small because Steve Harris is telling you solar panels are a good long-term solution for power. For those of you who want power for a month or months or a year and not just for a week like with Hurricane Sandy, I am going to tell you everything. If you're looking to buy an inverter and batteries and a charger right now, just hold off for about one month because in early December, I'm having a huge battery show with Jack. Mobile battery banks for your car and pickup truck, home battery banks for home power, and yeah, again, it's going to have solar. I promise you that it'll be a fantastic show and you can build your own solar battery bank and you'll have three as one redundancy. Not just two as one, one as none, but three ways of getting power into your batteries. To get these shows that I've talked about, I've done on how to power your house from a car, how to select, purchase, and hook up a generator to your house, please go to www.solar1234.com. Again, solar1234.com. You don't even need to download the show. Just use the tap here, listen here button, and it'll stream it directly to your iPhone or Android instantly. Also, hey, for some fun, uh, go to news.google.com and Google lines for gasoline. And you'll see news photos of people standing in lines three blocks long, all of them holding empty red gas cans in their hands. Okay, this is people lines three blocks long. The lines for gasoline for cars are 
over a mile long of people trying to get gasoline. Jack and I did a complete show on fuel and fuel storage, and you can listen to it at solar1234.com. I love you guys. Stay safe. We have lots of lessons being learned from Sandy. Eight million people without power. Millions will not have power for a week. And I got dozens of people emailing me telling me how great their life is compared to their neighbors because they listened to what Jack and I did on the Survival Podcast. I hope you can join our family of really prepared energy people and you won't have any suffering when the next thing hits you. Thanks, guys. Well, there you go. And uh, I've been telling you I have a special project for Steve that I've discussed with him, and that kind of gives you the overview of what it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be dead awesome. Uh, it's something that, uh, as I'm putting a new uh, diesel storage uh, toolbox into my truck, I want to do on my truck. Uh, I know I can do it really, really, really good, and I know that Steve Harris can make what I was going to do just a little bit better and thought, well, instead of just me asking him a few questions, why don't I let him just do the whole thing and make it available on the air? That's what we're going to do. So uh, tune in in December for more on that. But hopefully this kind of puts to rest the whole solar generator thing. And again, the, the quick answer here is you for the for a lot less money – You can build a battery backup system that either charges from the grid or charges from your vehicle and add solar to it as a, as a contingency and have a lot more power and a lot more functionality than you'll ever get out of one of these dadgone rip-offs. They're rip-offs, they're rip-offs, they're rip-offs. Steve just said, why, so I'll let it go. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My name's Dave from Georgia. I'm the butler on the forums, and I just had some questions for you about storing food in buckets. I've heard... Uh, you touch on this over shows in the past. I think one time I heard you say that in place of oxygen absorbers, you could use the off-the-rack uh, pocket warmers and hand warmer type things they sell in the winter and at hunting season. And I just wonder if you could touch briefly on that again um, and maybe about the use of desiccants as well in food storage and buckets. And I'm curious um, why... We use specifically mylar bags instead of polypropylene or any other materials. So if you could help me out with that, Jack, I sure would appreciate it. I look forward to uh, hearing you on the show. Have a good day. All right, some good questions there. Number one on using hand warmers. It's not always a better option because they're not always cheap, but usually, like when hunting season ends, they have them in the clearance bin, and you can get like a package of three of them for like a dollar. And basically what you're looking at there is a giant oxygen absorber. If you take a hand warmer and you cut it open and look at what's inside of it, you will find some little material in there that's basically iron filings and uh, some chemicals that cause the iron when exposed to oxygen to rust faster than it would rust if it didn't. Uh, have that little bit of chemical addition. And if you cut open an O2 absorber that you can buy from many places and look at the stuff that's in there, it's the exact same thing. There's no difference to it whatsoever. It's exactly the same thing. And this is how a hand warmer works. When when that accelerant causes that that iron to begin rusting almost immediately, it creates heat. That's why it gets warm. Now, what happens when something rusts? It oxidizes. And what that means is it takes oxygen from the atmosphere and combines with it 
and takes that oxygen and bonds it into the rust itself. So that's how you get iron oxide or iron-based rust. It's oxidized iron. For the iron to oxidize, it has to get the oxygen from somewhere. It gets it from the atmosphere. So the rusty nail in the side of a building takes up a little atmospheric oxygen, takes a long time to do it, and it happens very, very slowly, and there's an imperceptible amount of heat there, but it's there because it's happening. Right, But it doesn't really matter because it's such a small amount of oxygen and it takes so long. But if we accelerate that, we get heat. If we accelerate it and put it in a sealed container, then the only place it can get its oxygen from is inside that container. So it takes up oxygen, takes up oxygen until one of two things happens. The ability for the iron to oxidize has been completely played out. It's done. It's rusted as much as it's going to rust. The surface areas are completely covered with rust. The accelerant's been used up. It's done. And then all of the oxygen that it's taken up is now inside there and bound to the iron. Or it, and then there's a little bit left over, right? Or it runs out of oxygen. It's a really good sealed container. It takes up all the oxygen that it can, and it gets to a point where there's no more oxygen left. And if we've used a large enough O2 absorber in relation to our container, that's what happens. And that's why sometimes you'll open one that's been completely sealed, and if you hold on to it and feel it, it'll start to warm up a little bit again. Because it's still got, some, still got some mojo going on, and as soon as you expose it to oxygen again, it'll start gobbling up. That's how you keep them from, from acting until you are ready to use them, is by keeping them sealed. Right, so that's that's how they work, and they function the same way. Now, taking a you know hand warmer, you know, and putting it into a gallon size, you know, uh, vacuum sealed bag or something like that, it's not very practical. But when you're filling up an entire five gallon bucket of stuff, they work great for that. They're like a great big giant tube absorber because it's what they are. They're this again. They're the same thing. There is no chemical difference between the two of them. If you're selling food, they're not FDA food rated. So, but it does. The FDA stamp is what makes it safe, right? What's actually made of is what makes it safe. So that's the answer there. On desiccants, desiccants are something that absorbs moisture. So if we have a sealed, oxygen-deprived environment with an, in, the only way that that O2 absorber does us any good at all is for oxygen and air and moisture to not be able to get into the concealed container. If it can, it's completely useless. It really is because once it runs out of its capacity to absorb oxygen, more oxygen will come in and it won't be there to do its job anymore. So in that case, the need for moisture absorption is relatively low. Because, let's face it, if, if air can't get in, Uh, you know, if, if oxygen can't get in and hydrogen can't get in, then a bonded hydrogen and oxygen molecule, which is larger, can't get in either. So it's mitigated. But if, it, if the item that's being stored has any level of residual moisture, adding a desiccant can help uptake that residual moisture. But what we're putting into these things should be well dried in the first place. But it wouldn't hurt anything with some caveats. There are certain things uh, that might actually... Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't really worry about it. This is the way I would put it about put it out there. Um, I use like you know a desk kit more likely uh, if I'm storing a, a gun or something metallic long term to keep it 
uh, from, from rusting. Uh, if you have something that you want to keep dry, Uh, they're useful for that. A lot of times if you're dry, jarring goods, uh, maybe that would be a useful place for them. But I've done dry jars with O2 absorbers. It's a great, you take dehydrated peppers, you fill up a, a quart mason jar with it, you know, a, a can, with a regular canning lid on it and what have you. You throw an O2 absorber or two in there depending on the side, size, and you, you seal the jar. And you know what happens when you go to open the jar? It's sealed. Like, like psh, when you open it. Because why? Because if the oxygen was taken up and no more oxygen can get in and the oxygen is now oxidized and bonded with the iron, it's more compacted, it's more dense, it takes up less space and effectively it creates a vacuum. Which brings us to our last thing. Why do we use mylar versus polyethylene or polypropylene or anything like that? It's very strong, it blocks light, and it's cheap. And it seals easily with heat with no special tools whatsoever. So if we take a whole bunch of bags of stuff or even just a big bulk amount of wheat or rice or something like that, and we're going to put it in a five-gallon bucket, if we line the five-gallon bucket with mylar first, we pitch the O2 absorbers in there, squeeze out most of the air and take an iron to it, we can seal the top of it with, you know, almost everybody in America probably owns an iron. So I don't need any special tools. And it's cheap. And it's impermeable to light. Light doesn't pass through it. So even if the bucket doesn't 100% block light, now I've got the mylar blocking the light. Now when I shut that into my bucket, it might not be all tightly sealed up, but if I put O2 absorbers in there, when I open the bucket later, you'll see that mylar has cinched up and tightened up almost like it's been vacuum sealed. Right. So it does a really good job for us with no special tools, No vacuum equipment required, no special sealers. All we need is an O2 absorber, and they're inexpensive. If we take that and put that into the bucket, and then into the bucket we toss in some more O2 absorbers and put the lid on the bucket, now we have done kind of a double redundancy. If it, the, we've overpacked or over-tightened the mylar and it happens to rupture, even when it's exposed, it's still in an O2-deprived environment. So we can go to overkill with this, but you package wheat, rice, and things like that in a bucket uh, that way, uh, it's got a longer life expectancy in reality than you do. So there's kind of the three things there. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Black November from the forums. Um, on a recent episode, Stephen Harris said that he got a pretty good deal on a Honda generator on Craigslist. Um, there's a lot of generators in my area. I was just wondering what is uh, important to look for when buying a generator off of Craigslist, obviously ours, but what other telltale signs to look at when checking out a generator uh, secondhand? Thanks. Bye. This could be a really deep question, so I'm going to try, since as always on Fridays we're going really long, to make it simple because there's, the reality is you can only do so much. The first things I want to do if I'm going to buy a used anything with a mechanical component to it, especially something like a generator, is uh, how long did you have you owned it? When did you get it? Where did you get it? And why are you getting rid of it? And if it's I bought it last year at Home Depot because I thought I needed one and I've used it a couple of times and I, that's it and I just don't really use it that much and I need money, I like that answer. Uh, if it's hum and haul and hum and basically the same answer, I'm worried that the answer I'm being given while having the right words is not being honest with me and the guy's having some problems with it. That's, that's, that's kind of number one. Number two, yeah, you want to look at the hours on a generator if it's got an aerometer on it. Not all of them do. 
Not every generator out there, especially some of the smaller generators, a lot of them don't have an hour meter on them. Uh, but if it does, I want to take a look at that. Uh, I want to look at the fuel. If there's fuel in the generator, I want to take a look at it. Uh, I, I would go as far as to say, get yourself a little bit of siphon hose with a siphon bulb, and when you go meet the guy, push it all the way into the bottom. Take a clear jar with you. Pump some of the fuel into the jar. Look if there's any uh, uh, water in the fuel. Generally, you know, not generally, just straight up, water and gasoline separate, and water ends up at the bottom. If there's any water in there, I'm definitely concerned about it. And if the gas just seems like it's really old, nasty gas, I'm a little bit concerned about the components as well. Bring some fuel with you so that you can fully fuel the generator up, start it, run it. Bring some extension cords and some stuff you can run off the generator. Make sure it actually works and functions. Open up the oil tank and take a sampling of the oil. If the oil looks like sludge, it's never been changed. And if he says, I bought it last year, used it four times, and the oil looks like black sludge instead of you know typical oil, he's full of shit. Um, look at the overall case, the condition, how it is. Did, did you have the manuals with it, the, the documentation that came with it? People that keep stuff like that are generally people that do a good job. The other thing I would ask is, where has it been stored? Right On my back deck is a big different answer than in a shed right, or a garage or what have you. So where has it been stored? That's going to be probably evident, though, if you do the other things. But I want to know what the oil looks like. I want to know what the fuel in it looks like. I want to know what the overall appearance of it is. I want the backstory on it. I want to run it. I want to test it. And if it, if, if you know, the, the thing is a pull start and you pull it and you pull it one time the way you're supposed to, and it just boom, 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 fires up and runs and hums and does everything and the fuel looks good and the oil looks good, You're not even going to know if there's a, there's not much else you can do at that point. Um, and, you know, that said, if you find the gas looking a little off or something, but it runs okay, you might use it as a little bit of a negotiation. Or if the oil's a little bit murky, but it looks like it just, yeah, it really needs to have the oil change. You can say, you know, how, how often did you run this? Because, and you can tell when a, when a piece of equipment has been run longer than scheduled oil changes by looking at the oil. Um, it, it's usually pretty obvious. And if you see sludgy, thick, stinky oil, that piece of equipment has been abused. And, and I wouldn't buy that. If I, if I siphon gas out of the thing and, you know, I end up with, you know, four inches of gas in a glass jar, like a pint jar, and there's like a, a, an eighth of an inch of water at the bottom of that, I don't want that generator. I don't even want to clean that generator out and try to make it work. It might work out okay, but you really don't know what's been done to it. You don't know how many things are gummed up and nasty in there. And unless you're, if you have to ask the question, you're probably not the mechanically inclined guy that's going to strip everything down, completely clean it up, and put it back together. If you are, you, you probably know what to look for. That's what I would do. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Oil Lady from the forums. I've been listening to just the first minutes of episode 1004 with Steve Harris where he's talking about generators. And I have to say I'm lost because I really don't understand what are kilowatts, what are watts, what are hertz, what are megahertz, what are amps. 
I don't know what all these things are. And, you know, I mean, I have a light bulb. The light bulb says it's 40 watts. I don't even know what a watt is. And as far as trying to tell the difference between this generator and that generator and this appliance and that appliance and hertz and megahertz and watts and amps, and I just don't know what it all means. Do you think you can have Steve Harris come back and explain the For Dummies version for dummies like me so that we can better understand this stuff? Thank you so much. I can, but I don't think it would be a good idea because I think it would leave you more confused, not less confused, if, if we did that. So I want to try to give you the dummies version because I won't use all kinds of uh, metrics and calculations and mathematics and things like that. I'll make it abundantly simple to you. A watt is a unit of measurement. Uh, it is named for a gentleman named James Watt, who was uh, an engineer and lived from about 1730-something to like 18, 19, 18, 20. And it is a measurement of energy conversion. And that's more than you need to know. A kilowatt is a thousand watts. Hertz, don't worry about it. Don't matter. Uh, you use the electricity in your home every day without worrying about hertz. And the only thing that you worry about in your home when it comes to electricity is what kind of plug does it go into? Does it go into a 110 or a 220? That's it. You have a couple uh, things in your house that go into a higher voltage line, and that's it. When it comes to sizing a generator, and you look at a light bulb that says it draws 40 watts, with some exceptions for how long the cordage and things like that are, with a little bit more, that's pretty much what it means. It, it draws 40 watts, and that's how much power it takes. So if you had uh, uh, some sort of really tiny, small generator producing and this would be more like an inverter producing 100 watts, and you took 40 of it, it's only got 60 left. And not only does it only have 60 left, you're running at the absolute maximum capacity. If you have a 1,000-watt generator and you have a 100-watt light bulb, you're pulling 100 watts, you've got 900 watts left to work with. It's, it's that simple. And all you, all you really have to do when you want to know, well, how many watts does my refrigerator draw, there'll be a plate somewhere on it or a sticker somewhere on it that will tell you peak watts. And running watts. Peak watts is when it first starts, it has a peak draw. In other words, when it's, it's kicked off, it's sitting there all nice and quiet, and it's just using the, the cold that's in there and holding it in like a cooler, and then all of a sudden the thermostat says, oh, it's getting a little bit too warm, and it kicks on, the compressor kicks on, it spikes how many watts it draws for just a little bit of time, and then it levels back off, and it goes back down to what those running watts are. You can look at all of the watts and add them up and see if the generator will carry them. And just remember, a, a, a kilowatt's a thousand watts. So if you have a two kilowatt generator and you're trying to run 1200 watts of total load, you should be able to. You don't even have to know what a watt is. All you have to be able to do is basic mathematics and understand that the generator is rated to a certain level. And if you overtax it, It won't perform. It'll shut down on you. It'll start to sputter, or you'll trip a breaker, or something will give up and just say, can't do it. Or uh, the appliance just won't be able to draw enough energy, and it just won't run. It'll just kick off. So th that's it. There's, there's, there's no reason to go into the scientific nature of this stuff unless you just like that stuff, right? So basically... What my advice is, which is a little bit different than what Steve gave, is buy more generator than you're ever going to need uh, for what you want to do. So I could probably get by with a 3,500-watt generator for the systems that we run uh, when we're in a power outage. 
I bought a 6,500 watt generator. That means if I go up to, I'm drawing 3,000, 4,000 watts of power, the generator's running at half load, and it runs very, very fuel efficient at a half load. That's mitigated somewhat if you go to an inverter generator. Some of these, they're more expensive, but these really quiet uh, inverter generators that Steve talked about. So what I would do if you were struggling with that show is go ahead and listen to it again. And when you start hearing technical terms that don't really make a lot of sense, just try to use what I've given you so far to understand. You can only take so much. That's, that's all that it really comes down to. You can only take so much. The more you take of what's available... The harder the generator has to work, the greater its fuel usage will be. It's There's a certain amount of energy required just to run that generator. If you fire it up and don't plug anything into it, it just sits there and idles, it's going to use quite a bit of fuel. But there's a significant difference in fuel utilization of a, of a generator that's kind of humming along at 40% of load. So if it's a, if it's a 10,000... A 10 kilowatt generator to make it a nice round number, pretty big gen- 10 kilowatt generator, and it's running four four kilowatts. It's running at 40 percent of load. It's running at 4,000 watts of the 10,000 that's available, and running it up at let's say 80 percent of load or 8,000 watts or eight kilowatts. It's running at a higher level. That's about as simple as you can make it, and I don't want to make this more complicated. I don't want people to fear it. Um, what you should have taken away from Steve's show is determine the size of generator you need and get one. And if you want it wired into your house rather than using extension cords and things like that, which is the easiest, safest, most flexible thing you can do. But for some people, like, you know, if you have a well or something, you, you might want a transfer switch, pay an electrician and get it done. If you have to ask what a watt is, you probably don't need to be doing your own backfeeding, wiring, even installing your own transfer switch and things like that. It'll cost a couple hundred dollars to get done. It's worth every penny. And then you'll fire the generator up, you'll plug it in, and, and your house will run. And there's no way you can backfeed the grid. There's no way you can mess anything up. So that's the simplified for dummies version. Don't overthink or worry about all these ratings. Just make sure you're providing yourself enough power and you have enough fuel stored to run your device for as long as you want your resiliency to last. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Indiana, and this question is a follow-up to the one that you answered um, regarding diesel engines and the caller's question around whether to buy a, a diesel and the cost premium. And, and my follow-up question is I'm, I'm curious to know, um, now having driven a Jetta diesel for a while myself, um, what, what drives the cost spread difference between diesel and gasoline? I think it was probably a month ago or six weeks ago that the cost of gasoline and diesel were actually fairly close, uh, 15, 20 cents. And now, as the caller mentioned uh, previously, that it's closer to 50 cents uh, or even 80 cents in some cases. Uh, and so I'm curious to know what, what drives that, that spread between gasoline. My, my assumption is twofold. One, it may be switching to a winter blend here in the upper Midwest that may drive supply and demand issues of diesel. Uh, and the other that I've heard that I don't know is true is that as the demand for gasoline goes down with higher prices, the, uh, the demand for diesel remains much more constant, and so it's, it's how it's produced as a byproduct of gas. But anyway, any, any knowledge or insight you have on the spread between gas and diesel and, and those fluctuations of costs uh, would be much appreciated. Thanks. 
everything you said can have some effect on the price of diesel and does and has some effect on the premium of diesel over something like regular gasoline today. Um, but none of them are the big driving force. For years and years and years, I remember diesel prices fluctuating from anywhere from about a dime less than unleaded gas to about a dime more. They would generally float somewhere between a little bit under uh, the, the, you know, the low-grade gas and right about at the mid-grade gas price. And it was like that for a long time. Then people decided there was too much sulfur in the diesel and it was contributing to pollution and we came out with low sulfur diesel and eventually ultra low sulfur diesel. This requires a great deal more work in the refinement process of the diesel fuel. Many modern countries have these standards. They vary quite a bit. And some countries that require low-sulfur diesel or even call it ultra-low-sulfur diesel do not have standards quite as high as the United States. And a lot of countries today that are producing, uh, that, that use diesel a lot for generators and cars and trucks have very, very uh, limited standards. In fact, the diesel fuel they're using is not much different than a diesel fuel that we were using 15 years ago. That means that for the countries with the stronger restrictions, you have to buy the diesel that's been refined to the level that's acceptable under your admissions requirements in your country, and everybody else can buy anything. So you have to buy the best stuff, most premium, highest cost stuff, and you have to buy all of it out of that group. And that's the big reason for the premium that you see in diesel in the last, let's say, since about 2007 up till now, is those standards were implemented and tightened up. Modern diesel engines are designed to run on this ultra-low sulfur diesel. But you can get a diesel from 1968 and put the ultra-low sulfur diesel in it, and it don't care. It don't work the other way around. Though. You go out and buy yourself a 2012 Super Duty, and go put old diesel in it, you may have some issues. It's not going to be a problem. It's not legal for anybody to sell it in this country. But there's your, there's your big reason. Due to the more stringent requirements in recent times, making the production more costly and making the supply more limited versus the total global supply of diesel, because, again, other countries do not have these stringent requirements The most stringent requirements, to my knowledge, are Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Uh, and and fairly, fairly stringent, I think, in Canada. And believe it or not, I think even Mexico is pretty dadgone stringent. But a lot of the rest of the world, diesel's diesel, they don't care. So they get to buy the diesel out of the total pool, and we have to buy the diesel out of the narrow pool. I'm not saying it's good or bad. You asked why I'm telling you why. So that, that's, that's the reason thereof. But it's also the reason that cars like the Jetta diesel, uh, the Passat diesel, these modern diesels running these modern engines have emissions that are cleaner than just about any other vehicle out there. And I would say that they probably, if you look at, you know, what you call the longer tailpipe theory, in other words, if you have a fully electric car, Uh, and you plug it in, the energy comes from somewhere, and the and, and so there's emissions somewhere. The 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 high end new modern diesels probably have lower emissions in reality 
than a fully electric vehicle because somewhere something's being burned to make that electrical power that goes into that vehicle. And even if it's a solar panel, you had to build it. If it's a wind turbine, you had to build it. So I'm not saying that those things are bad either. I'm just saying that's the reality that these modern diesel engines have extremely uh, good emissions footprints. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, I started listening to 1002 episode on homesteading, and I couldn't get past uh, the profanity. I just, I'm sorry. I, I don't mind occasionally you, you use a word like that, but it's like somebody somebody pissed in your Wheaties or something. Uh, I don't know what was up, but uh, I might go ahead and give you a try to listen some more, but I, it's just, it just uh, not uh, really really uh something i want to listen to all the time uh, uh i consider my standards a little bit higher my mother said profanity is the attempt of a feeble-minded person to express themselves forcibly so that's a thought anyway have a good one uh steve from richmond have a good one bye Well, Steve from Richmond, what I'd like to do, and probably people are waiting for me to tear you apart, but I'd just like to point you to um, the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. I'd like you to hover on about, and I'd like you to click on something called Disclaimers and Policies, and I'd like you to go down to Section 3, Adult Language and Content Warnings. Let me read it to you so that I can address this as I have to about once or twice a year when people feel the need to bitch about the fact that I say words like bitch. But hold on for me, folks. I'm not going to tear Steve up, and I do have a much larger point here. But just let's listen to what I put out publicly from day one about this show. One, the Survival Podcast is not a G-rated, family-friendly radio show. The host will clearly get angered at times and use what is commonly referred to as adult language, including on very rare occasions possibly the dreaded F-bomb, though I've ever never actually done that, by the way. Though such use is very rare indeed. However, as this show is marketed to adults, the host will often state when the shit hits the fan rather than the customary when the S hits the fan of those who choose to censor themselves. Two, the host of the show recognizes that many of our listeners may not, quote, approve of, end quote, his use of phrases such as bullshit rather than the customary BS substitutions many others choose to use. However, we feel most sources of information are watered down and do not address the true nature of modern times. Three, all adult language is used to express genuine anger and or emphasis. Many individual shows won't use any such language, as it is not called for. Other shows may use quite a bit. This use of language is simply to make the show authentic. It is never used for shock value or just because I can. Four, please do not email me or state things such as, quote, if you continue to use foul language, I won't listen to your show anymore, end quote. I respect your opinion and hope you can look past the occasional adult world from time to time, even if it's not what you would choose to use for yourself. The show will not be altered, though, to accommodate individuals that take issue with such language. If you want sterilized and censored speech, there are many sources of it. Five, we believe in freedom here. If you choose to listen to our show, you do so as a free human being on planet Earth. And therefore, we are not responsible for any mental anguish, mental trauma, or feeling of being offended, or any other emotional problems that you get from doing so. I could not be more forthcoming with what the show is. And Steve, I'm sorry, but if I were to alter the show now to accommodate those of you who occasionally have a big problem with my use of adult language, I would do a disservice to the people who have listened to the show for over four and a half years and have come to expect it to be authentic. You're listening to me speak the way that I speak every day, right now, plain and simple. And if you don't like my use of a word like shit, I really don't care. 
But now my larger point. Folks, I'd like to ask you a question. Who decided that shit was a profane word? Who decided it? Who decided that that was a word we're not supposed to use? And why is it okay to say poop or crap or caca but not shit? Why? Because society at large decided so? Is that the answer you're going to give me? Really? Well, society at large in the global spectrum today has decided that socialism's a better idea. Look at the world map and see where socialist countries are and where countries that are at least supposed to be free, liberty-oriented nations are and tell me what society as a whole has chosen. And does that mean that socialism's a better idea? Who decided it? See, to me, a word is not profane. A... Thought is profane. A concept is profane. And I can use no profane words and make a very profane statement by saying something very aggressive or ignorant towards another person. So if I were to tell you to eat it and mean it, that's pretty profane. If I'm directing that at you, if I'm using it as an example like I just did now, it is not. But if I tell you to eat crap... To me, the concept of saying that to somebody directly is an equally profane intent. The word itself is not profane. So who decided which words were usable and which words were not usable? And why are we ignorant enough as people to accept allowing entire words to be removed from our language? And as I say that, I ask you, have you ever read or watched George Orwell's 1984. If you have not, please do so and take that concept with you when you when you go. Just saying, who decides what we can and cannot say? And I'll put it to you this way. You sit down and have a beer with me, you're going to hear me say a word like shit from time to time. You'll actually hear more in certain situations we're talking about certain things. Because I'm authentic, this is who I am, and if you don't like it, go elsewhere. And if it's not up to your standards, well, that's your choice. And I never started this show with the intent to try to make everybody freaking happy. I just didn't, and I'm not trying to do it now, and I'm not going to change it. And it amazes me that some people are so bent in the pants about it, they have to whine about profanity. But I'll ask you this, Steve. You can find other shows, and I don't want to sound arrogant here, but this is reality. They might be up to your standards from a standpoint of not using a word that offends you. But are they up to your standards for depth of information, breadth of information, accuracy of information, and content that's directly applicable to your life? And you have to decide for yourself, like every other human being on planet Earth, which one of those is more important to you. I think for the majority of people, even the ones that don't necessarily approve of the words I may use from time to time, they've decided that it's more important to get the information than to worry about it. It amazes me how many times I hear from people, I'll let my kids listen to you, I don't care, and I don't let them talk that way. And I say that's the way he chooses to talk, we don't talk that way. That's called proper parenting. And there may be subjects you don't want your kids to listen to. But if I'm going to stop using a word because it offends you, well, you know what? Guess what, dude? I offend people every day without using a single profane word or a single profane thought because I make a statement that they find offensive. I say something like, I think if you're a socialist, you hate liberty. And people are offended by that. I feel that way. I won't change it. And as far as it's an inferior mind 
I'll tell you what, Steve. If you want to really make that point, let's pick a couple issues. And we can debate with each other intellectually. And I may or may not use words you find profane. But we'll see if it's really because I have a weak mind. I don't think I have a weak mind, Steve. I think what I have is an open mind. And I'm not willing to let somebody else who decided 150 years ago that a certain word was not to be used to censor my vocabulary. I think we have one more in queue. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chad in Sylvania, Ohio. Um, I was curious if you could tell me what could possibly be in water that makes it impossible to get it safe even by boiling. I had just seen a report on the news that said that water in Nassau County up in uh, New York is uh, unsafe even by boiling. So if you could answer that for me, that'd be great. Thanks. Bye. It's a good question, and I can answer it with a little bit of science, just a little bit to make it really drive home why this is the case. When we say boil water will make it safe to drink, and we're talking about the wilderness or something like that, basically if we boil water and we hit 212 degrees, we do what's called pasteurization of the water, which means that anything that can live in water will be killed by reaching that temperature. In fact, we begin pasteurization at 160 degrees, and the time it takes the water to get from 160 to 212 is such that by the time the water boils at all, we've killed any biological life in that water, and Therefore, we can't get something into our bodies that would do us harm like cryptosporidium or gerardia. So it's pasteurization. Now, when it comes to chemicals and minerals that may be toxic or something like a metal that may be toxic, it is a crapshoot unless we know exactly what's in there. And here's why. If you look at something like there's chlorine in water and there's chlorine in your tap water, if you boil water for quite a bit of time, you will drive all the chlorine off because chlorine gets dissipated into the atmosphere at a temperature lower than water does. In other words, you don't have to get to 212 degrees to push chlorine out of water. You can do it at a much lower temperature. In fact, if I take a five-gallon bucket, bucket full of tap water and let it sit out for a couple days, even at room temperature, the chlorine will off-gas and come out of the water. So I could boil water to get rid of chlorine. But if I look at something like fluoride, which is a mineral, uh, I would have to heat fluoride much higher to basically incinerate it and cause it to off-gas into the atmosphere. And since water can never get over 212 degrees, no matter how high you make the, 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 the fire, right, as long as there's water in the pot boiling, the water cannot go over 212 degrees because it will become steam at some point. So at 212 degrees, when I'm boiling water with, let's say, a high concentration of fluoride, if I boil that water for 20 minutes, I actually increase the amount of fluoride in the water. Because, let's say, an inch of water is gone, is steam, and off into the atmosphere. Now there's a greater concentration. If I had 1% of something in water, and I boil off 50% of the water, and none of it leaves, now I have 2% concentration, if that makes sense. So if I have something in the water that's a chemical that will not boil off uh, unless it's – if it, let's say if it was something that boiled off right at like 210 degrees, I'm not going to get very much of it gone. The lower its volatility, the lower the temperature which it will be driven off, the more I'll get out by boiling. The closer I get to boiling point, I start driving them off at the same rate. Now, there's nothing out there – that has an exact replication of water. Water is a very unique substance. But if there was a chemical that became 
exactly the same volatility as water at 212 degrees. And I boiled water, and I boiled it for an hour, boiled off half of a, of a big, huge pot of water. I would end up with the exact same concentration because they're being released at the same speed. Now, obviously this means if I have chromium or lead or something like that in my water, boiling it won't do anything. And many other industrial chemicals or solvents that can contaminate water, they are ha they're going to be volatile at a much higher temperature. So I just can't drive them off at the temperature water is capable of getting to. And this is most industrial, nuclear, mineral, metallic contaminants are going to be like this. A, a simple experiment you could do is dissolve as much salt as you can in water, in a, like say a couple quarts of water, start boiling it. You know, taste the water before you boil it, and then boil half of it off and taste it. It'll taste much saltier, right? If you boil it long enough, the salt will crystallize. You know, if you boil all the water off, you'll end up with you know salt crystals because you can't boil it off. So that's what causes that. Great question, though, and it it does dispel the myth that boiling makes all water safe. Boiling makes all water safe if the only contaminants we're concerned with are biological. So if we have a mountain stream or a lake or something like that, uh, we can boil water and make it safe. Now, we may be able to make water that otherwise would be unsafe, safe to drink through distillation. If the chemical contaminant has a, is, a, is, is not volatile at 212 degrees, if it's you know chromium or something like that that's contaminating the water, and we start boiling the water and we condense the steam back out the other side, Then we're going to leave the contaminant with the water, and the condensed steam and distilled water is going to be much safer for us to drink. If we have radioactive contamination, it's an entirely different thing altogether. So there you go. That's the answer to a really great question. That wraps up another show. Uh, these shows have been going longer on Fridays, but I enjoy doing them that way because we can cover a lot more information. I think today's was just totally information rich. I thank all of you that called in, including the guy that doesn't like the fact that I occasionally curse. Thanks for your call. You gave me an opportunity to make a great point. Don't go censoring individual words. Don't consider something profane unless it actually conveys a profane thought or a vulgar thought. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.